Oh, thank you for being here today on this crisp fall day. Thought we should have an amphitheater outside eventually for these days. It's beautiful. Kids can go downstairs. Adults, you can't. Adults have to stay. Adults, we're going to do crafts up here today. And all, No, we're not going to. Kids can go downstairs. Thanks for being here today. I know there are lots of places to be on a pretty day like this, um, including the yard or the campground or the lake. Um, those are just three of my favorites. Um, but uh, really glad that you're here today. I want to give you a chance to take a deep breath. Um, we do it every Sunday. It's something that it's, it's funny. You know, I do this twice every Sunday. I preach two times. The, uh, the church I was at about 10 years ago, we had seven services on the weekend. And when I preached on a weekend, it would just be like, I'm almost a trip to the ER when I'm done. I'm just getting fluid, you know, after. Um, but it's, it's incredible. I, I've, I, that's when I started doing this. Um, every, and, and for 10 years, every time I preached, I do this deep breath before. And it's for you, I promise. But it's for me. Um, seven times I'd start preaching, and by the fourth or fifth time, I'd forget who was in the service and whether I'd already said that. And, and I need this moment of perspective. And I'm only preaching two on these Sundays. And by the second one, I'm realizing, oh, my gosh, I'm already back to thinking I'm in charge of this sermon. <laughs> I'm already back to feeling like what I'm about to say is my words and I have to say something good or you're going to leave without a good idea. Truth is, this is all about God. And it's really easy to forget. So if you came in today and you have um, messed up your priorities this week, join the club. Um, we all do it. And this is a great opportunity for you to say, I, I'm, I'm reorganizing my priorities. Um, and if you're kicking the tires on the God thing, um, you're welcome in this place. You know that we have, we've got a, a, a podcast now, a, a weekly sermon on our website, and people are listening. And people that aren't coming to church are listening. Um, which means if you're listening today and you're not sure that you're ready um, to come to the church, you're welcome. A lot of the people, most of the people who followed Jesus originally didn't believe in him. They followed him because of curiosity, because they knew that there was something better in life and they thought he might have it. Um, so you're welcome if you're, if you're in that boat as well. Most of us in this place have been doing this a long time, and it's real easy for us just to come in and have another Sunday. Um, but if you will take a moment, take a deep breath, I believe God will say something big into your life and into your heart today. Um, so we're going to do that, and then I'll close this out. I'll give you about 30 seconds just to be quiet um, and reprioritize your life, and then I will close this in prayer, and we'll jump in today. God, it feels good to be quiet. In the noise of our life, we constantly are berated with things that the world wants us to put in front of you. We choose right now to move everything down the list except for you. We put you back up top. Would you speak into our lives? Would you, as Ron reminded us this morning, we have this opportunity to come into to start clean, to start fresh. Would you forgive us? Would you give us 
people in mind that we need to forgive. God, just now, it's beautiful outside. It's a beautiful day south of here. Our brothers and sisters and friends and family and fellow human beings are holding on for dear life with this storm. God, would you give us empathy as we watch the news? Would you give us um, moments that we can feel like you feel? God, would you raise up opportunities for us to serve them and do what you want us to do? Until then, we pray that you have your way and we will do our part. Thank you for the way you love us. Thank you for speaking into our lives and not just watching the world spin. Thank you for being here. We invite you into this place. Pray that you be honored by the way that we listen and by the way that we act in your son's name. Amen. About 10 years ago, actually I said 10 years ago in the first service, but I realized just now it was about 11 and a half years ago. um, I took a trip to the Holy Lands. And the reason I know it was 11 and a half years ago is because my daughter turned 12 yesterday. And she was about six months old when I left for the Holy Lands, and my wife was not happy, (laughs) and I remember it well. Um, I was uh, doing video production at the time, and a a Christian speaker was going to the Holy Lands and hired my production company to go with them um, to shoot video of him, and he was going to go around to all these places in the Holy Lands and do a teaching from each of those places. So it was cool. It was a great opportunity. I remember when I was a kid um, over in Gosport Christian Church, my grandmother was my first grade, second grade, and third grade Sunday school teacher all the way through. Um, and there was, in my second grade class, there was one student, and I was it. And my, my grandmother would stand up, and she would prepare all week, and she would stand up in front of the class and say, now class, turn in your Bibles, and there I'd be, turn in my Bible, you know. And my grandma taught me some of these, these stories that stuck in my heart, that made me want to do ministry for the rest of my life and share these stories. And I, if, you're, if you're like me, and you grew up in the church, and you're as old as I am, you probably learned a lot of these stories with, with what they called this high technology called flannel graph, um, which if you don't know what that is, ask an old person. Um, but it's a, it's these, these little cut out flannel things that you would stick on a flannel board. And my grandmother would tell me the story and she'd have a little Noah and then she'd have a little ark and then she would put all the animals in the ark. And then she would ask which student would like to come up and put animals in the ark. And I would raise my hand, you know, <laughs> I would walk up and put animals in the ark, you know, and, and, um, all the stories that I learned when I was a kid, um, were taught to me in that way. And so as I got older, I began to think of these stories um, in the Bible like flannel graph, like a Disney story, like a cartoon. Um, And so I remember her saying all the time to me, um, John, these were real people. These were, this was a real place and a real, in fact, I remember my grandma saying, in fact, you could go there today if you wanted to. And I thought, man, when I get older someday and I can do anything I want, (laughs) I'm going to go to the Holy Lands. I want to go see where Jesus was, and I want to see where these stories took place. So I, being an adult that could never afford to go to the Holy Lands, um, this was an incredible opportunity for me to get not only to get to go, but to get paid to go um, as a part of the video production. So we prepared, and it happened to fall right um, six months after my wife had had our first baby, uh, which didn't go over real well. Um, but I went to the Holy Lands for um, about 18 days, and I was so excited. I was so ready to bring this reality to my faith. And what I got, to be honest with you, I was pretty disappointed. It was very touristy. Um, the place felt like Disney World for Christians a little bit. 
Um, I, every place we went, it looked as though they knew I was coming and they were ready for the money that came with it. Um, and it was a little discouraging the first few days, um, we went to these places and I just felt like this doesn't feel real to me. It feels like an amusement park. Um, and I remember we had this incredible, um, tour guide. Her name was Mary and she had been a tour guide in Israel for 40 years. Um, she was Jewish. In, in heritage and in religion. So she didn't believe that Jesus was the Son of God, but she believed he was a man. She knew where he lived. She knew more about Jesus than any of my college professors in Bible college. Anybody that I'd ever known, this woman knew, but didn't believe that he was God. And so she made that clear as she was up front, but she said, I've been doing this a long time. I have an incredible reverence for Jesus, and I know where all of these things are, and I can tell you. So she, she would go to a new place, and she would tell us about it, just like a tour guide where it was. But we got to know her over that period of time, riding the bus through places. Um, and I remember specifically, we went to the tomb, to Jesus' tomb. And I remember how I felt when I got there. I don't want to ruin this for any of you who are planning a trip to the Holy Lands, um, but it was really anticlimactic to me. We went to the tomb. We were supposed to shoot um, just outside the tomb. They wouldn't let us go inside the, the gates there, but we were going to shoot just outside the sign of, of Jesus' tomb. But we decided to take a tour of it first, so we walked inside, and I realized what this thing is. You walk in one door, you go around, and they parade you next to this tomb where they, they, they are telling you that Jesus was buried. And then you walk out through the gift shop. And you get the I saw Jesus' tomb t-shirt. And you get your stuff, and you walk away. And you pay to see the tomb, and you pay for your t-shirt. And it is a tourist trap. And I just had this weird feeling. Like, I remember looking at the tomb and thinking two things. One... I hope that's not the tomb of Jesus because this is weird. And two, I wonder what are the chances are that that really is the tomb of Jesus. So I was standing there and I was looking at it and this Jewish tour guide standing next to me. This is her last tour. She was, she was going to retire after this. And she said, um, so what are you thinking? She knew I was thinking something and I'm standing there with a video camera. I'm not allowed to use until I get outside, you know, and I'm standing there and she said, what are you thinking? And I thought, she was meaning, what, what are you thinking about shooting? And, but I was thinking something totally different. I said, you know what I'm thinking is this is gross. This is gross to me. That, that people would be walking by Jesus' tomb and buying T-shirts at the same time. It's just gross to me. And she said, I don't think that's Jesus' tomb. And I went, what? She said, I'm not supposed to tell you that. Never mind. I said, oh, please, please tell me. She said, I give it a 6% chance that Jesus was, dead, was in that tomb. What? We're getting ready to shoot a video with a guy who's flown all the way across the world to stand outside and tell the viewers that this is the tomb of Jesus. She said, that's, that's not what I believe. She said, it's not my job to tell you what I believe. But I said, what if I made that your job? What if you told me? What, what do you believe? You've studied this. Where do you think? She goes, do you want to know where I think Jesus was buried? And I said, what good a chance? She said, I think it's 60, 70% chance that he was buried somewhere in this place. She said, let's go get on the bus. So I talked to the guy who was speaking, and I said, hey, let's take a little diversion. We, we may come back here, but let's go, let's go find Mary and, and this place that she's talking about. So we got on the bus, and all the way there, her entire demeanor changed. It went from tour guide Mary to this is real life, and this is what I believe about Jesus. So we went, and we went to this big hill, and I got pictures of this. I almost brought them today, and I, I forgot to put them in my PowerPoint. Uh, but there's this huge hill around the corner. It's about, about maybe a 15-minute drive on the bus from where the, the Disney World 
for Christians was. And we went to this big hill, and she said, there it is, guys, somewhere up there. And we turned around, and hole after hole on the side of this hill, cave after cave, was covered with a big, round rock, just like the one my grandma showed me on Flanagraph. I mean, it could have come just from the pages of that, rolled over these tombs. She said, people are still buried there, and they still use some of these tombs. And she began to tell us about Joseph of Arimathea and about um, the, the rich people that would have been buried in the tombs there and the fact that Jesus was given the tomb of a rich man and, and all of these things. And, and we began to, to put a real scenario together about where Jesus was. We didn't know for sure this was it or that the other one wasn't, but we got to stand in front of this. And, and when we, we told the guy who was speaking, he decided, I want to speak here. If this is the best chance, I want to speak here and I want to talk about real life and about making Jesus real in your life. And it was a milestone for me. We went from there um, to a place called Caesarea Philippi. Um, and it was really cool because now we've got the tour guide into this feeling that, hey, these people really want to know. They're not just in this for the ride. They really want to know. So I would start saying, what percent chance do you think? She would say, eh, that's where scholars believe that Jesus was when he said this. And I'd say, what percent chance? And she'd go, four. Like, All right, let's move on. You know, So we went to Caesarea Philippi, um, and that was where he was going to do his next talk. And um, this was the next day. And I said, what are the chances are this is where Jesus talked to the disciples in Matthew when Peter gave his great confession? And she said, I give this somewhere in the 80 to 90 percent range. I'm like, yes, that's about as good as you can get, you know. And so when I think about the, the piece of scripture I want to read you today, man, it is real to me. We got there. And we, we stood next to this cave. And I mean, when I say cave, don't think mammoth cave. I mean, think just the scariest, ugliest, scary piece of open earth that you've ever seen. There's an opening in the earth right there made of rock, and it gets black and dark, and it looks like something um, that you would draw if you were drawing the gates of hell. I mean, it is just this scary thing. And in fact, the, the people who lived there in the time called it the gates of hell. And, and Jesus was um, in Caesarea Philippi, in the place where the gates of hell were, in Matthew chapter 16. And I think of this so, um, so real because of standing there and the, the fear that I had. There are people that were standing outside of it. We we're probably five, 600 yards away, but there are people that are about 20, 30 feet from this big opening. And you can hear them talking because it goes into the cave and you can hear the echo. And it's just this odd, really creepy sense um, of being there. And in Matthew chapter 16, is where I want to start our talk today. Um, Jesus talks to these guys standing outside of Caesarea Philippi, and there is a sense in them that, and sense in Jesus you can even feel, that, that people aren't understanding who he is, that they're Disneyizing him a little bit, that they're creating him to be something he's not. And so he looks to these guys, and, in, and you, here you see it. Jesus came into the country of Caesarea Philippi, and he asked his followers, and that is the group of people that were around him, he said, who do you say that I, the Son of Man, now, you see every now and then in the Bible, you'll see Son of Man. You'll see Jesus refer to himself as the Son of God. You'll see him refer to himself as the Son of Man. And the truth is he's both. He's, he's fully man and fully God. And that is weird to people at times. Um, and so Jesus was teaching a lot about this. In this instance, I think that Jesus was having a really human moment. I think he was feeling like, you guys are misunderstanding who I am. You're, you're, you're treating me in a way that, that proves you don't understand who I really am in my life. So he says, who do people say the Son of Man, I the Son of Man am? 
And this is a great moment. The, the, the writer, Matthew, says, they said, some say you're John the Baptist and some say Elijah. Others say Jeremiah or one of the other early preachers. People are, early, are really quickly to, like, popcorn out. I, I get the impression there's a whole bunch of people around and people go, Jeremiah, you know, and prophets. And, and, and he, so Matthew is telling us all these p- things that they said. And, and the truth is, I'd like to start today by asking you the same question um, that Jesus asked that day. Who, who do you think Jesus is? Now, I don't want a Sunday school answer. I don't want the tour guide of the Christian Disney World answer. I don't know. Who do you think he is? A fairy tale? You know, I think a lot of Christians never got him off of the felt board. They never got him out of the Sunday school stories. They never got him out of Disney World. And, and it was always a cartoon to them. Is he a weekend magician? Is he the, 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 and this was a lot of people followed Jesus because he was a, to him that he was a magician. He's going to do a miracle. I'm, I'm going to eat if I'm around him. I can live however I want, but when I'm around him, he's going to do something amazing. And so they, they live their life however they want, and they show up on Sundays when they need something. An insurance policy, a lucky charm. I was watching a, a, a documentary recently on an athlete that I like, and they said, hey, I noticed you've got this cross around your neck. Are you a Christian? What's that mean? He said, no. When I was in high school, I played football, and I had a really good game, and I, my mom had given me this, and I ran it around my neck. So now I wear, I wear a cross as a good luck charm. <laughs> like, oh, my gosh. This is exactly what Jesus meant. He's a good luck charm now? What? No, what he wants to be, what he deserves to be. And in your heart of hearts, what I want to prove to you this morning, that you want him to be, is the center of everything you do. If he is who he says he is, and he can do what he says he can do in your life, you want him to be at the very center of all of it. So Jesus, it wasn't good enough for the popcorn answers. So next, he says, how about you guys? Next slide. He says to this group, how about you specifically? Who do you say that I am? I picture crickets here. Nobody wants to say, you know, everybody kind of backs away except for one guy who is always the guy that steps up. His name is Peter. Simon Peter said, I'll tell you, I think you're the Christ. You know what the Christ is to him? I think you're the thing we've been waiting for. I think you're the answer. I think you're the thing that we've been talking about, the thing we've wanted our whole lives. You are the Christ. You are the son of God. You've come and you are not just a man. You are bigger than us. You're the thing we've been waiting for. And Jesus said to him, Simon, son of Jonah, which is really cool. Simon would have studied who Jonah was and he would have connected him to this great hero of the faith who also had some of the same struggles that Peter had. He said, you are happy, which is fulfilled. That, that thing you just said to me will fulfill you. He says, because you did not learn this from man. This came from God. My father in heaven has shown you this. And then he has this moment that if you've been around church very long, you know this is one of the biggest moments in our faith, especially the non-denominational Christian church that you're a part of today. He says this, I tell you that you are Petros, Peter. Now the word Peter um, is something that Peter would have had with him his whole life um, that kind of drove him nuts, honestly. He was a little guy. Um, We think from scripture and from history that he was probably a little guy and he had a little bit of a little guy syndrome where he was always trying to be bigger than he was. And the name Peter, especially the way that they would have used it, would have meant little rock. (laughs) And it was this reminder to him that he's little and that, that the world sees him as little. And Jesus calls him little rock at first. He says, now you, Petros, He says, you are Little Rock. 
But then he changes this conversation. He says, and on this boulder, and I like to think that Jesus grabbed Peter and he put his arm on him because Jesus touched people a lot. He put his arm on him. He said to the crowd, on this boulder, used to be a little rock. Now with my blessing, he is a boulder. On this rock, I will build my church. Which is so cool because 2,000 years ago he said it. And do you know how much stuff the church has been through in 2,000 years? And today you sit here because of Jesus' promise. This is why if you're a part of church and you've ever heard of the good confession, you've ever heard somebody give it right before they're baptized, this is where it came from. This is where uh, Peter said, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And that's why we ask each other to repeat it. Because Jesus said, this is what we're building our church off of. And then he looks up and I believe, now the Bible doesn't tell us this, but because I was standing there and because Caesarea Philippi is not a very big place, I believe Jesus was probably standing in the vicinity, in, in visual shot of the gates of hell, of that awful, ugly cave that I told you. And he says this, on this rock I will build the church. The powers of hell, and in the NIV version it actually says, the gates of Hades, which is what they called that, the powers of hell, even the scariest, most gross, most thing that we're most scared of will not stand against the church. Man, this was a prediction that nothing would stop God with the church. I love this piece of scripture. I love it for a few different reasons, and and I want to dig a little bit deeper. What happens next is, is even more exciting to me. Check this out. Next, um, from that time on, Matthew says, that Jesus began to tell his followers that he had to go to Jerusalem to suffer many things. Jesus begins to say, hey, that whole thing I said about the church and about, God, um, about God's power and about Peter and all of that, that is absolutely true, but I'm going to die. <laughs> I'm not going to be with you very much longer. In fact, the religious leaders are going to kill me. He begins to tell his, his, his followers that, and they just didn't understand. He, he began to tell them he would be killed, and three days later he would be raised from the dead, which we know really happened. Peter took Jesus aside because Peter's excited now. Hey, I'm, the whole church is going to be built on me and on, on me and my faith and that, that faith comment I made. And, and Peter took Jesus aside from all these, which it was pretty gutsy to do. And he says, some versions of the Bible says he rebuked Jesus, which is a pretty gutsy thing to do. I wouldn't recommend that. Um, Peter took Jesus away from the elders and spoke sharp words to him. And he said, never, never will you die, Lord. This must not happen to you. And then Jesus turned to Peter and he said something that's really scary. I wouldn't want him to say it to me. He looks at Peter and he says, get behind me, Satan. Right now, he says, you are representing something that isn't God. You're representing the opposite of what God wants me to do with my life. Basically, he says, get behind me, Satan. You're standing in my way. You're not thinking how God thinks. You're thinking how man thinks. The truth is God thinks backwards to us. Jesus taught things that were backwards to us. And at that moment, Peter was in this sense in Caesarea Philippi that he has to be in control, that he has to know what's coming next. And if he doesn't know what's coming next, then everything must be out of control. And he lost trust in God. So what happens to us is that we begin to, to think backwards from God in our lives. Like this. Check out this next slide. Um, you've all felt this way, that, that you want stuff. This is the way we are. My, my nine-year-old son deals with this on a daily basis. Every time a commercial comes up, he wants it. I want it. I want it. I want it. A man thinks, I want stuff. You know what Jesus said? <laughs> what God says? He says, give up your stuff. You get too much stuff. You put too much hope in your stuff. You know, every year for Christmas, my wife 
rents me a dumpster for my, for my Christmas present. It's the best Christmas present you can give me. Because I'm so tired of Nerf guns that don't work anymore. So tired of Barbie dolls that London's grown out of. Bikes that don't work. Basketballs that we had to have that are now flat. I'm tired of all of it. And I, you would think by this time in my life, renting a dumpster every December, that stuff wouldn't drive me anymore. That I wouldn't walk into Sam's Club and go, oh, over the big screen TVs, right? But it's still in us. Man thinks I want freedom. That is, I want to do whatever I want to do, whenever I want to do it, with no consequences. And God says, what if, what if you had something different? What if you gave up some of the choices that other people in life make? And you said, I want to be... I want to give my freedom back to God. I'll tell you what that means in a minute. Man thinks it's all about me. Our whole life revolves around us. Jesus says, what if you got perspective, which is what I prayed for this morning for you. I hope you prayed for it too. That God, I'm not the only one here and this world does not revolve around me. Jesus says, when you can understand that, it changes your understanding of peace and of hope and of joy and of what God's doing in the world. Man says, I want to live. Jesus says, what if you gave up your life? What if you, what if you gave up your, your choices? And what if, you, what if you just pursued God and you gave him back the choice he gave you? Jesus continues. He says, if anyone wants to keep his life safe, he will lose it. It's backwards, isn't it? If anyone gives up his life because of me, he will save it. <laughs> For what does a man have if he gets all the world and loses his own soul? What can a man give to buy back his own soul? Now here, Matthew could have used three words to, to use the word life. Um, but the words he used, so there's three words. The first one is bios, which is this physical, tangible life. If you're breathing today, you have bios in Greek. Um, there are three different words for it, and that, that word bios would have been this just deep breath. Everybody has breath. Um, the second word is psych, and the idea of psych is your quality of life. Everyone has a quality of life. It might be good. It might be bad. When Jesus said, I came to give you life and life abundantly, he, this was a really important choice. He used the word psych. It was this word that meant physical, tangible life on earth will be better if you give your life up for me. It will be better. Not that it's great, but it will, it, you'll have a peace that passes on understanding. That is really important because a lot of people think Jesus said, I'll give you life eternal. Because the third world is zoe, which is the word in Greek that means eternal life and it means God. But Jesus used this word, and, and Matthew uses this word here to say, hey, the, the life that God wants for you, that, that quality of life that you're looking for, comes when you give your life back to God. That is, that you wrap your life around Jesus. For Christians in America, this is really hard to do. You know what's really easy to do? Wrap your life around your job. Wrap your life around your kids and their ball games. Wrap, wrap your life around everything else and then make Sundays about Jesus. That's the, that's the MO for American Christians. You know, people at this point in this day and age, they, they couldn't. I mean, their whole life was survival. If you were a Christian, you were choosing to survive. And you had to wrap your life around Jesus. You had to. And he says, that's what honors God. And it's the thing that you're looking for. I'm afraid that there are Christians sitting in our pews today. There are Christians listening to this online. There are Christians all over Bloomington. There are Christians in my car, including me, who are under the impression that Jesus is okay with being a a second choice, an afterthought. 
under the impression that, that if, you, if Jesus were to say, who do you say I am, and you were to say, an insurance policy, just in case. In case I can't take care of myself, I want to make sure i got a backup plan. Jesus is not okay with that. It's not the plan. It never was the plan. What was the plan from the beginning? Was that you would wrap your life around this Jesus. That's what he means by give up your life. It means thinking like God. It means a different way of thinking. That next slide. It means that we have to think. See, Peter had this moment where he thought he was in charge. He had this moment when he was talking to Jesus where he thought things were getting out of control and he needed to get them back in control. And Jesus says, that's not God kind of thinking. God kind of thinking is different. You know, Jesus dies like he says he would. He dies and the disciples go away. They just All these guys that had heard this message over and over, they went away. He died on the cross, and these guys just, they thought it's over. Three days later, he rose from the grave, and it changed everything. And these disciples started coming back. And when they did, they started growing churches, the church that he promised Peter he would build his rock on. These churches got bigger and bigger and bigger, and they started spreading all over the place. And finally, a man named Paul continues this um, this spread through through all this this exact church that Jesus had told Peter he was going to build, and he, we come to this point um, in the story of Jesus and in the story of of moving Jesus to the center of our lives, where a man named Paul talks to a group of people in, in a church called Galatia. Um, in, in, in this city, in a church called Galatia, there was a whole group of people who were starting to feel as though um, they, that, that Jesus was just a secondary thing. It was something they could do um, and then live their life however they wanted. And so Paul says this, um, Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. He says, there are these things that come out of you. These are, this is evidence that you have wrapped your life around Jesus. He calls them fruits of the Spirit, which if you've been around church very long, you start to tune out because we've heard this so long. But this is such a profound thought. That a life that has wrapped themselves around Jesus has fruit of love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And if we're not careful and we just read that and we don't hear what, John, what uh, Jesus said in John, Jesus said, and by the way, when it comes to these fruit, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I remain in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So here's what we do, especially American Christians. You've fallen into this trap and I have too. We've woke up in the morning and said, I want joy. And so we sit in our chair and we go, joy, please hope or we we realize we're short with our spouse or our kids and we say boy i need to work harder at patience the problem is we're too impatient to work hard at patience because we begin to think we're just like peter that it's all about me and that i have to work harder at being patient i don't know about you but man my i start to realize how how i've lost perspective when i'm in my car somebody pulls out in front of me and i go from singing along to something to a guy I don't want to be happened to me this week. I pu- somebody pulled out in front of me and all of a sudden I realized, holy cow, I have all this pent up anxiety and this pent up stuff. And then of course it wasn't a mile later before I pulled out in front of somebody else, you know, and they're yelling at me and I'm going, what? I'm doing the best I can right after I just yelled at somebody else. And the truth is I'm worthless. If you want me to sit in a chair and get better at patience by trying harder, this is an uphill battle. But Christians do it all the time. They come to church, they feel guilty because they don't have joy or peace that passes on understanding or patience, and they go, I'm trying so hard. But <laughs> what? this is the good news. This is what Paul says. When you wrap your life around Jesus, John says, or Jesus says, 
I am the vine and you are the branches. When you wrap your life into me, the fruit comes naturally. You know what an apple tree never does? It never sits in the morning and goes, apple! Never. It never has to work at producing an apple. You know what it does to produce an apple? It wraps itself around the nutrients, the source of the apple, the thing that actually produces the apple. It wraps itself around that, and then one day, there's an apple. This happens in your life too. This is the promise of wrapping your life around Jesus. If you can today not go, I'm going to work harder at being patient. If you can say, I'm going to work harder at wrapping my life around Jesus. That means I'm going to find ways of studying. It means I'm going to find ways of being with God. That means I'm going to find ways of having conversations about Jesus on a regular basis. What will happen is someday somebody will just go, man, you're, you're different. There's a joy just coming out of you. And you go, huh, I wasn't even trying. Yeah, that's what fruit does. Guys, the enemy would love for you to think that it's your job to make yourself more patient. That it's your job to make yourself more joyful. (laughs) Jesus took that job. Not only did he die on the cross for your sins, he said, I am the vine. I am the nutrients. If you dig into me, if you wrap your life around me, that's where the fruit comes from. This is a whole nother sermon today, but I think we've worked too hard at patience, too hard at peace, too hard at joy, and not hard enough at wrapping our life around Jesus. There's some things Jesus did, and I've got to go here. Some things Jesus did to wrap his life around God. And I believe he did it so that, that we, he would show us how we wrap our lives around God. I'm going to put this out on the website, um, and the sermon will be out there too, in case you want to see this later. I can't spend a lot of time on these. But these are just a few things that I think Jesus did to wrap his life around God so that the fruits of the Spirit just popped out of him. He got into the nutrients, and the fruits came out. And it involved giving up something, and it involved doing something different. This is what I would love for you to do. If you're a Christian person, if you're a follower of Jesus today, get up in the morning and think, what am I going to give up today? What is it that I'm going to give up for God? And what is it that I'm going to do differently? So many Christians out just doing life the way the rest of the world does life and wondering why they don't have the peace that passes all understanding. What are you going to give up, and what are you going to do differently? Here's some things Jesus gave up. He gave up being with people sometimes. Solitude. My mom calls it a day of solitude, and every now and then I'll be in a grumpy mood or something, and she'll say, son, you need a day of solitude. And I know what she means. She's, I'm 42 years old, and she's giving me a time out. That's her way of saying, you need to get away. You know what happens when I get away, and I quit trying to make people think I'm better than I am, and I quit trying to say something funny, and I don't, I don't have to do anything like that, and I'm just by myself. I realize that God's in charge, and I'm not. I've given up something. Silence, words, for some of us, that's really hard. For me, your preacher, I'm just trying to give up the next five minutes. Silence, just stopping. Fasting. Jesus went through times when he was trying to stay connected to God, when he was, when he was feeling like he wasn't getting a chance to wrap himself around God the way he needed to so the fruits of the Spirit could come out. He decided he was going to fast. The idea of fasting is not just eating so you lose some weight, or not eating so you lose some weight, or so that you can join something the church is doing as a project. The idea of fasting is saying to God, I want to give this thing up. I'm going to sacrifice this thing voluntarily in my life so that every time I get a hunger pang, I remind, I'm reminded that you're in charge of my next meal, that you give me everything, and that you could take my breath if you needed it. 
If you wanted right now, you're in charge. I guarantee you, if you have never tried fasting before, I guarantee you, you do it your first one for 24 hours, and you pray. Every time you feel a hunger pain, every time you think, boy, a Pop-Tart sounds good right now, you go, God, I wouldn't even have Pop-Tarts. I wouldn't have food if it weren't for you. And you remember to pray that every time. It will change your perspective. Jesus did it well. Giving. That is not, hey, I'm going to take a little bit out of my check. That is not, oops, the offering plate's coming by. Here's a $10 bill. God doesn't need your money. You heard Ron say it this morning. Jesus, what Jesus means by giving is take something that means something to you and give it away to prove that you didn't need it anyway. <laughs> that what God has is much more valuable to you. And your life with Jesus is more important. Chastity. This is a whole other sermon, but this is uh, absolute refrain from sexual um, intercourse or from any sexual thoughts whatsoever as much as you can. And that's married men. If you're going through a hard time in life right now and you go to your wife, she won't have near as difficult a time with it as you do. <laughs> that's the way this goes. Um, but this is a life changer for some people. It really is. Um, and it's, a, it's something you give up. Sacrifice. A way, a way to take something and give it away. Um, and, and that's not just money. That's something that means something to you. You've heard the story before. My parents have decided they didn't need two cars and they'll find somebody that needs one and give it away in their life. <laughs> And then usually buy another car at some point and give it away in life. I don't know what it, 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 there, there's these big moments in your life where you say, I want to wrap Jesus around my life and I'd like to give something that hurts so that I'm reminded of that. Jesus did something different all the time. He studied, um, he, he worshiped, um, he found time for prayer, he found time for getting together with people that felt like he felt about life, um, confession and submission. These are all things that Jesus did. There are lots of these things, lots more of these things that you can do. Um, some people call them spiritual disciplines, some people call them a daily quiet time. The truth is, whatever you call them, the deal is to get your life wrapped around Jesus, not on Sunday mornings. Those of you who are waiting band you guys can come up and that'll make me shut up here in a second those of you who come to church on sundays you feel a bit a little bit better when you leave but you're really tired of the, the monday morning feeling of boy i felt better yesterday but the depression has set back in or that ongoing sense of depression in your life is set back in you can't you can't get what you're looking for here on Sunday mornings. You just can't. What you're going to get is a fresh breath of perspective. You're going to get a shot in the arm to do another week. But what Jesus wanted that moment when he talked to Peter, when he said, who do you say I am? What he, what he wanted is for people to say, you are the very center. Monday, Thursday afternoon at 2 o'clock when things are bad. I wrap my life around you. I don't know what it means to you today. I'm going to let you and God deal with it this morning. But I can tell you this. If you choose to do life like this, if you choose to follow Jesus in this way, not just on Sunday mornings, but where you wrap your life around him, it will make you better at life. It'll make you better at doing life because it puts you in congruence with the way God created you. And it will make your life better. I'm not t selling you that your life gets good when you get Jesus. That all of a sudden everything goes away, all the bad stuff goes away. But there is a peace. Sitting on the porch with my wife a few weeks ago on the front porch, watching my kids play in the front yard, 
bills all over the place. I got frustration. I got people at work that are mad at me. I got grass that's growing. I got problems with my house. I got all these things. The same thing everybody else has. And I sat on my front porch and I just had this moment of peace. And I looked over and Risha had one too, my wife. And she said, man, we're just happy, aren't we? God, we're happy. And thank God I'm not in charge of that. Because, man, you want me to be in charge of happiness for my wife and my kids. You've asked the wrong guy. You want me to wrap my life around Jesus and say, God, you tell me how to get happy. You tell me how to bring joy. It just pops out. It just comes out. And I'm telling you today, this is real life. This is not a flannel graph board. This is not a Disney story. Don't settle for Jesus on flannel graph. Who do you say he is? Is he worth wrapping your life around? Today's the day. Don't walk out of here with a flannel graph Jesus. He wants you to wrap your life around him. Would you stand with us and sing this song today? Write to him. God, I'm wrapping my life around you. Yeah.